0: Well, amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for me this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. Uh, Today we get to start into a new section of the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I am titling the next three sermons uh, this morning, this evening, and then next Sunday morning as Marriage Counseling from the Apostle Paul marriage counseling from the Apostle Paul. It comes in three parts, and so that's what we're going to be looking at here together today. As I said uh, in one of my comments earlier, there are all sorts of conflicting views about how we should function or behave within marriage, and so it will be refreshing and very important. It's critical to hear what the Bible says about how we should be functioning uh, within marriage. In the introduction to 1 Corinthians, I took a little bit of time to show you a device that the Apostle Paul puts into uh, a literary device that he puts into the second half of the book of 1 Corinthians. You can see this device in chapter 7 twice. If you look at chapter 7 and verse 1, he says, now concerning, or now as touching, And then if you look again, down in verse 25, he uses the same exact literary device when he says, now concerning, or now as touching, there. He does this six times through the latter half of the book of 1 Corinthians to let us know when he is moving on to a new topic. But these just aren't any topics that he or the Holy Spirit uh, led him to write. These are topics that he is addressing because the Corinthian church had written a letter to the Apostle Paul that had questions and statements in it. And so Paul, when you see these devices, Paul is responding to questions or statements that some within the Corinthian church made to him. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 through 24, Paul discusses questions or a group of questions that the Corinthians posed to him about marriage. Look at chapter seven, verse one. Uh, Now concerning the matters of which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. As you're reading through this text, it becomes obvious that Paul is going to be dealing with things that the Corinthians were saying about men and women within marriage. Now, you might be here this morning and ask something like this. Uh, I am single. How is this section going to help me? You just said three sermons. Maybe I should just like skip out on the next three. Uh, However, from your pastors, we believe that every member should be well-trained to help people in counseling or assist those within the body who have needs. I find it very interesting that this marriage counseling in this text comes from the single Apostle Paul. He had a lot to say about marriage in this text. So regardless of whether you're single or married, there's going to be something very good in here and helpful to you as you minister to others within the body. And by the way, all of those of you who are here today and who are single, you will have your own set of sermons in a few weeks. When you look at chapter 7, verse 25, it says, now concerning the betrothed or those who are engaged, those who are single. And then I'll talk about widows and widowers. So you will have your own sermons in a few weeks. And I'm going to be calling upon all married people at that time to pay close attention to what the scripture says so that they might be able to minister to people within the body who are single. Okay, so this text is for all of us. And I want to encourage you to pay close attention to what Paul does here. Um, In verses 1 through 16, he answers three questions about marriage. That's how I understand the text. Three questions that the Corinthians post to Paul about marriage. We're going to deal with one this morning and two this evening. I'll tell you about this evening's sermon later, but two this evening, only one this morning. The question that he addresses in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 6, is uh, found on your handout there in your notes. The question is Is intimacy within marriage forbidden? Okay, I'll repeat it again. Is intimacy within marriage forbidden? For some reason, some of the Corinthian believers wondered if intimacy within marriage was forbidden. And so what I would like to do is I'd like to look closely at verses 1 through 6 to see the nature of the issue in Corinth that Paul was facing, and then look at Paul's counsel or advice to this church in verses 3 through 6. So I've got a simple outline this morning. Verses 1 and 2.1 is a discussion of the Corinthian marriage problems. Verses 1 and 2. And then Paul's marriage counseling will come in verses 3 through 6. So look down in your Bible at verse 1 again. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I want to encourage you to pay close attention as I explain verses one and two, because many Christians today misunderstand and misapply verse one. Okay, it's one of my pet peeves. I have seen this verse misused so many different ways in the Christian church. And so what I would like to do, first of all, would be to look at that, that phrase near the, the end of verse 1. It's translated in the King James this way. It says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I want to I think about what that might mean. Does, does that mean every time I accidentally brush up against someone of the opposite sex that it's wrong, I'm touching them, so a sin... Of course not, right? It, it cannot mean that. Regarding this phrase, uh, to touch, Gordon Fee makes this statement. Let me just read to you what his, his uh, conclusions were on it. He said, the idiom to touch a woman occurs nine times in Greek antiquity, ranging across six centuries and a variety of writers. And in every other instance, without ambiguity, it refers to having sexual intercourse. Thus, it appears that when Paul says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, he's talking, this is a metaphorical way for him to describe sexual relationships, which is why the ESV has translated this verse, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Yet there's much more to learn about this phrase if we're going to understand it this morning. If we're going to walk out of here saying we understand the passage, we've got to drill down just a little bit deeper. Okay, So uh, there are two basic ways to interpret that phrase, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Some people suggest that what what is going on here is that this is Paul's statement or Paul's point. So Paul is saying it is good for men not to touch a woman. If if we understand it in that way, Paul is then talking about... uh, Extramarital or premarital relationships. He's talking not about marriage, but he's talking about giving kind of a general principle or rule that men should not be touching women in that way. Okay, uh, but I want to suggest that that's not the best way to understand the point. The other way of understanding it that makes much more sense in the Bible is to see this as a Corinthian slogan again, a Corinthian slogan. This is something the Corinthians penned in a letter to Paul. This is a principle that they wrote down. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But that what actually happens after that is Paul uh, disagrees with that statement. Okay, so let me just take a few moments here to try to defend or give you a good, few good reasons to believe that that statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, is a slogan. First of all, I think it's good to take it this way because of the immoral culture that the Corinthians found themselves in. If you study much about the city, you see that sexual license was prevalent in the ancient city of Corinth. And everyone was doing it. And so Paul's admonition here in verse 1 and through verses 6 he is dealing with a live situation. And it could be that some of the Corinthians had rebelled against all sex, even in marriage, because they thought that somehow the act itself was defiling. I want to suggest that it wouldn't be too abnormal for a group of religious people to overreact, or respond to problems in their culture. I'll give you a few examples on this particular subject. There's an ancient writer by the name of Josephus. Josephus, who talked about the Essene people. The Essene people were a group of religious Jews who were quite conservative. Matter of fact, in some cases, they removed themselves out into uh, places like Qumran because they were concerned about their own purity. Well, Josephus said this about the Essenes. He said, marriage itself was viewed as second best by the Essenes and as a concession to the lower or baser instincts. Okay, so the Essene people believed that marriage was just surrendering to something that was baser or lesser in our instincts. As a matter of fact, the history of the Roman Catholic Church also also will demonstrate that sometimes religious people respond to things in the wrong way, especially this particular issue. The Roman Catholic Church has argued for centuries that celibacy is superior to the marriage state and even requires their priests to take vows of celibacy. There's an author by the name of R. Kent Hughes, who I think visited the church a few years ago and the seminary. He is the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. And as I was reading one day in one of his commentaries in the pastoral epistles, I came across this lengthy statement that I put in your handout where he summarizes the the views of the Roman Catholic Church about intimacy within marriage. Read it with me here. I'll read it out loud. You just follow along in your notes. Hughes says the dominant attitude of the Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages was that sexual love itself was evil and did not cease to be so if the object were one's spouse. The early church fathers, Tertullian and Ambrose, believed that the extinction of the human race was to be preferred to the sexual relationship within marriage. Ambrose wrote that married people ought to blush at the state in which they're living. Augustine argued that the sexual relationship was innocent marriage, but that the passion that accompanies it is always sinful. He frequently counseled married people to abstain. Albertus and Aquinas objected to marital intimacy because it subordinates the reasons to the passions, whatever that means. The church fathers are virtu- virtually unanimous in praising virginity as superior to marriage. This culminated in the Council of Trent in the 16th century, which denounced that those who denied that virginity was superior to the married state. The Roman church kept adding days in which marital, marital intimacy was prohibited until more than half the days in the year were excluded. Hayes concludes, and you don't have the conclusion, he said, no wonder there was a reformation. No wonder there was a Reformation. I I think there were other reasons why the Protestants rejected what the Catholic Church was teaching, but this makes my point. It is very typical, it can be very typical for religious people to overreact to cultural things around them and or to, to have the view that even intimacy within marriage is wrong. Now, while there is much debate about how the Corinthian believers, you know, who or what influenced them to think this way, it appears that some were refraining in light of the wicked culture at Corinth. Evidently, some Corinthian believers had holiness concerns that impacted how they treated their spouses in marriage. Maybe that some of the Corinthians had spiritualized their marriage in a sort, claiming to be above intimacy with their spouse because of their close relationship to God. And so, one of the reasons I want to suggest this as a slogan is because of the immoral situation in Corinth and the way the Corinthians appear to have responded to it. The second reason—I just go quicker through these next two. The second reason it's best to see this as a slogan is because of the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture establishes the validity of marriage. In other words, if Paul said that men should not touch their wives, it would appear to contradict the rest of Scripture. Think of the book of Genesis, right in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the Scriptures say to be fruitful and multiply within the bounds of marriage. Book of Genesis, Genesis 2, and verse 18, God said about Adam, it was not good for man to be alone think in the New Testament as well, of the words of Christ where he says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Men and women, the scriptures nowhere suggest that it's inferior to be married. So to say that it's more morally excellent to refrain while in marriage cannot be Paul's point. That cannot be Paul's point. This is a Corinthian statement or slogan. There's a third reason why to take it like a slogan of the Corinthians. And put quotation marks around it in your Bible, and that is because of the rest of this passage. Okay, so now we get into the rest of the passage. You notice the very first word in verse 2 is translated, but. It's the Greek word, de. It could be translated, but, or on the contrary, so what I'm suggesting is that the Corinthians were saying it's good for men not to touch their wives, referring to having sexual relations with them. And Paul says, on the contrary, or but in order to avoid immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay. And so in verse two, he's basically saying here that each husband and wife are to avoid fornication by participating in with their spouse in the physical aspects of marriage. So verses 1 and 2 portray the Corinthian problem in marriage. Some were casting off intimacy within marriage. And Paul quickly corrects it in verse 2, but then he gives extended counseling about this in verses 3 through 6. So let's look look down into verses 3 through 6 to see how Paul continues to address This subject. His counsel, in my opinion, can be summarized in two statements. Because if you want to understand verses three through six, these two statements summarize what Paul is saying. First statement is you must fulfill your obligations to your spouse because you do not have exclusive rights over your own physical body. Now say it again because it's extremely important, and it summarizes verses three through five. Paul is saying, You must fulfill your obligations to your spouse because you do not have exclusive rights over your own physical body. Look with me down at verse three. It says a husband should give to her wife or his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. That's the command. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul demonstrates a very important point about marriage. This is the Bible's counsel about marriage that flies in the face of what the culture or what society says. The point from Paul is this marriage is all about giving rather than about getting. Marriage is about responsibilities rather than rights. And so the text says that believers are to give back conjugal rights to their spouse. This means that we have an obligation or duty to give to our spouse what they are owed. Words for conjugal rights really speak of a debt or being owed something. This is the case because when one gets married, he or she no longer has exclusive rights over their bodies. And to make his point especially clear, you have that command at the beginning of verse 5, do not deprive one another. That's Paul's counsel to this couple. Here Paul uses language that suggests that we owe our spouse. We are not to deprive them of something that is their privilege. Now those of us who are married in the room must realize that the emphasis on this text is how we might serve our spouse. This does not mean that we walk away from Pastor Brent's sermon making demands about our needs in marriage. I think I got like my new favorite life verses here. or so. No, this is not about your own needs. I mean, look at the the first words of verse three. I just want to read the first four words in your English Bible in verse three. It says, the husband should give. Important verb, not demand, not expect. The husband should give to his wife. And then it It reverses it, and it assumes the same verb the the wife should give to her husband. This text is not about making demands. It's not about entitlements. Rather, it implores you to affectionately care for and serve your spouse. We need to be very careful in what we do with this text and how we use it. So if our spouse is sick, or suffering, or in pain, please don't pull out this text to put pressure on them, to guilt them. This text is about giving, not getting. Marriage is about responsibilities, not my rights. Okay, so as we work through this text, we will hear all kinds of different voices in our society telling us what to do do, and explaining our rights. But we must follow the Bible instead. Men and women, if we could love like this, then our spouses will know that we love them for much more than their body, but that we care for their whole spirit, soul, and body. And that we long to see them grow in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I'm summarizing Paul's point verses 3 through 5, I say, you know what, if the first point is you must fulfill your obligations to your spouse because you do not have exclusive rights over your own body. The second point, verses 5 and 6, I would summarize this way. You can refrain from your spouse for a short time, but only with mutual consent. Paul here gives an exception which is followed by immediate disclaimer. The exception is found at the end of verse 5. He says, Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul's point at the end of verse 5 is that temporary abstinence, see the phrase for a limited time? Temporary abstinence with mutual agreement, see the phrase, by agreement, both parties agreeing, is permitted, permitted within marriage. Tem- temporary abstinence with mutual agreement is permitted, but then he, sh- he explains it a little bit further by, by, by saying that there must be a mutually recognized spiritual purpose for abstinence, temporary abstinence in marriage. And And I get that from the phrase, that you may devote yourself to prayer. See, there must be some spiritual reason or something that would cause us to do this temporarily. The words, give yourself to, are only used by Paul in this section. And they mean that that the couple would give their time or their attention to prayer for some spiritual purpose. So what kind of spiritual purpose or what should we pray for? Uh, It's been a tough question for me to consider this week. It's been difficult to try to ponder, okay, exactly why, what is the reason, so that you might give yourself to prayer, but what specifically would you be praying about or for? In my studies, I found one particular place in the Old Testament that I think is important to look at. So go back to Joel chapter 2 for a moment. Keep your finger here. We'll be in Joel 2 just for a minute or two. Joel chapter 2. I want to read you a portion of Scripture in verses 12 through 16, which is an Old Testament example of counsel from the prophet Joel for couples to abstain temporarily for significant spiritual reason. Look with me in verse 12 from Joel the prophet. Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. So prophet Joel is calling upon Judah and Jerusalem to repent, to have torn hearts, not torn outer garments. Look at verse 13 uh, in the middle of the verse. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. If you're here on Wednesday nights, you might recognize that phrase there again from another prophet who's repeating how God revealed himself in the law of Moses. Repent, for you never know. God might turn from his anger and forgive us. That's what the prophet says, verse 14. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave from his room and the bride her chamber. We understand this text. The prophet Joel is requiring the people of Judah and Jerusalem to fast and pray about their sin, to assemble the elders and the children together to declare just how serious they are about the gravity of their sin. And at the end of this text, I think what he's saying is even those in the honeymoon tent should come out and fast and pray so that they might indicate the seriousness or the brokenness that they have regarding their sins and the sins of the nation. Okay, so you could go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. As Paul's working through this text, he's saying you must have a significant spiritual reason for temporary abstinence with mutual consent. And that would be that you would give yourself to prayer. Paul closes in verse 5, if you look at the end of the text, with uh, a discussion of uh, a reason here why this exception should not be practiced in a prolonged way. Prolonged abstinence in marriage is a problem. And so he says that believing spouses should come together again. You see in your Bible, First Corinthians 7, 5, should come together again so that Satan tempt you not because of your lack of self-control. In other words Satan might get a hold on you or your spouse if you continue this way indefinitely and so it's not a good idea from the apostle I told you you're gonna get marriage counseling today from the apostle Paul this is continuing this way is not a good idea because Satan will tempt you in the moral arena and it might cause you or your spouse to fail men and women those of us who are in the room who are married must realize that one of the purposes of the marriage bed is the preservation or the protection of the purity of our spouse. This might not and, and is not maybe the, the main reason for intimacy within marriage, but it is a reason. Other reasons present themselves in the scripture like reproduction and pleasure. However, It's a legitimate safeguard in a marriage when people would engage in this act together. And for some of us to withhold from our partners for reasons like resentment or bitterness might actually be setting them up for failure in immoral ways. So this text basically says that when we do that and we prolong this sort of thing, you're actually increasing the temptation to immorality for your spouse. Spouses must not withhold from their partners as a means of manipulating them. Again, culture and society will speak differently about this. Okay, Remember a few weeks ago the phrase, my body, my choice. But the Bible challenges us to think ahead about how our actions might affect our spouse. That's the point of this, but come together again so that Satan does not tempt you for your lack of self-control. He follows that that brief exception up with a disclaimer in verse 6. The verse says, Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. In verse six, Paul quickly qualifies his teaching. And one of the biggest interpretive questions in the whole chapter is, what does the word this refer to? See that at the end of verse six? Okay, and the big question is, does the word this point back, backwards or forward? Okay, so does it refer to chapter 5, in the last part of what, or chapter 7, verse 5, and what he just said, okay, is he saying, I'm not commanding you about the temporary abstinence thing, but I'm giving you a possible exception, or does the word this refer forward to verse 7, where Paul describes his own gift from God as a single person, Okay. Um, there are good people who disagree on this, but I think it's a little bit better to say that, and you can see how I did it in my notes, that this, the word this, at the end of verse six, if you took a little line underneath anything, and you drew an arrow back to the end of chapter five, or verse five, that he's referring uh, there to temporary abstinence in marriage. Temporary abstinence in marriage is not a requirement or a command for married believers, but is, it is a concession or a possible temporary exception to devote yourselves to spiritual purposes. So as we work through this text, Paul wants to get the Corinthians to think about, not not about their own things and their own rights, but ways that they might serve their spouse. Remember the end of chapter six. At the end of chapter six, Paul gives a general principle about the physical bodies of all believers. In chapter six, at the end of that chapter, he says, you know what? Your body is not your own. It is the Lord's. He redeemed you. He bought you at a significant price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. See that? So Paul's theology of our physical body is very interesting to me. If you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your body is not your own. It's Jesus's. He bought you. And so you should glorify him with your body. To that principle, Paul adds this to married believers. To married believers, I think what he is saying is, your body. married believers, your body is not your own. It is your spouse's. And he's laying out this concept of selflessly giving and serving our families. Years ago, I remember hearing an elderly man talk to his sons about a diagnosis that their mother, his wife, had received. He explained that it appeared that their mother was suffering from a terminal disease. Now, never forget what he did next. He explained to his sons in tears that it was his desire to serve his wife and to minister to her through these difficult days and to help her finish well so that he might be able to present her to God one day and hear God say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I was struck in that moment by the selfless love of this man for his wife and his commitment to nurture her through her final days. I think this man realized that marriage is not all about getting. It's about giving. And marriage brings with it responsibilities and privileges in ways that I I can serve my spouse. And so men and women, as I close this sermon on a sensitive subject, on Paul's counsel to married believers in Corinth, I end with this prayer. May God give us such a great love for our spouses that we selflessly look to serve them, love them, and honor them more than our own bodies. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of thinking through this text with our people here at Colonial. Lord, um, I've simply attempted to read through the text, bring to bear, and, and to bring to bear what Paul the Apostle says about marriage. And I pray, Lord, that this would give us an all, all an accurate perspective on the way marriage should function. I pray especially for our families. I pray that you would strengthen our families, strengthen marriages within the church. I pray as well, Lord, that we might mute the voices of those who would talk about our own rights. I pray, Lord, that we, as we seek to counsel people within the assembly who might struggle in areas related to this, that we might be quick to take them right to your word, right to the Bible, to Paul's statements inspired by the Holy Spirit of God so that we might be able to offer them something that will actually help them and their marriage. I pray that we would reclaim teaching on marriage as a church and do so by pointing people to the text of Scripture. And Lord, I would pray for any of our marriages that might be struggling pray, dear Father, that you, for your goodness and your grace, would enable us to love like this. Father, at times it feels so far beyond us, but may we be selfless, like this text says. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.